0: a feud with Evan Strangler Lewis, violence, near riots, and a tale of a stolen watch. It's the story of Sarakichi Matsuda, part two. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swords. Paul has history nerds. You saw the alert because you subscribed. You hit the download button because you can't wait to hear it. And now here you are, here we are. It's pro wrestling history, nerds. It's another episode, a new episode, a part two episode. Who are we, what are we doing? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a pro wrestling booker, used to be a referee, occasionally a ring announcer, occasionally the guy who has to defend the ring from goofballs who try to uh, get involved from the audience. A story maybe we'll talk about in a future episode, but for now, I am a professional wrestling history nerd, and I'm here with the Barney Rubble to my Fred Flintstone. It's Chago Bronson. How the hell's your day? Well,
1: I got fired from the Rubble Yard,
0: even though I was named
1: after it, and then my wife is tripping, and my son broke the dishes. You know, bam, bam, slam, slam. I'm Capital, old chap. Hello, pro wrestling history nerds. Welcome
0: to the Take Two episode. I'm so excited to see you, proverbially. I feel like those dishes probably got broken. There was probably a dinosaur whose job it was to be a dishwasher. It turns to the camera, says, "It's a living." sad laugh across the board but you know what was a living you know what was something that uh, got people paid and gave them purpose wrestling in the 1880s and we are here to talk about sir Kichi matsuda it is part two talking about the first japanese pro wrestler in america i guess in the world because he, tried to, he wanted to take this art form, this sport, and take it back to Japan. He was so enthusiastic about it. He came to America, which wasn't very easy, in 1883. He learned the hard way how to apply a hold, how to do a pin, whether it was fair, whether it was a foil. He learned the rules. He wanted to take this back and have it be his gift to the people of Japan. And while in America, he sold a lot of tickets. He had a very fast learning curve, even though he did come from a grappling, a sumo background, a Japanese wrestling background. It's still a lot to learn, but he hit the competitive circuit almost immediately. Also immediately competing against the top guys in the business as a strange circus attraction, whether some were legitimate competitions, or if a few of them were HIPPAJOS! Who can say, either or possible, we weren't there, my time machine is broken, it needs a D battery, I can never seem to find them in 7-Eleven, what can you do? So we are stuck with conjecture, with assumption, and working off our best knowledge of what happened and why it happened. And in part one, we covered him coming to America. We covered him learning English, learning catch wrestling, beating up some racist people that tried to bully him outside of a church, like Mr. Miyagi cleaning house after the Halloween party when Johnny and his friends were dressed as skeletons. We saw him already locking up with the names of the era, the Beebees, the Muldoons, the, you know, the These are guys who were the who's who of catch wrestling stardom at a time when catch wrestling was becoming one of the premier sports to watch in America, thousands of people buying tickets, coming to watch this crazy thing happen in these new arenas and theaters, the same places you would see Macbeth being performed by touring British actors. It was a big deal. It was a legitimate sport for the most part, as we say. So this was meaningful. This was huge. This was completely insane and unheard of at the time. And some of you probably heard part one, and maybe somewhere out there, there's the guy writing the definitive biography of Sorokichi Matsuda. You found his secret diary buried in South Dakota or someplace, and you have that viewpoint into his inner life and his day-to-day business that we don't have, and you'll hear these stories and go, hey, dingus, you kind of fucked that one up. You're kind of assuming a little too much off of a Wisconsin newspaper that came out on a Tuesday from an author that wasn't even there. Granted, that is possible. We take the best information we can, going through all these old newspaper clippings and microfiche and uh, uploaded to the interwebs uh, pages of sporting articles from the 1880s, putting it together in the best story that we can present to you. I feel it's the closest thing to a narrative truth that can be provided. But you know what, as soon as you start telling a story, you interject yourself as the narrator. You have your own biases, your own favorite uh, themes and, uh, and and such for a story. So storytelling is fiction, even when you're telling a true story. But gosh darn it, we do our best.
1: It's some carney shit, man. What do you want from us? Let me break it down for you real simple, nerds. Carnies didn't keep records. We have to piece together a tapestry of you know, Indiana Jones archaeology of pro wrestling little tidbits newspaper clippings here and there and when I say we, I mean Gossie he does all the work and then I just show up and find out what we're talking about when we get here, but I digress man we are digging as deep as can be dug and if you've dug deeper than us and you know more than we do, then shame on you for not getting it out there first so we could quote you
0: and like i said we have covered the first i guess we'd say half of his career all those early challenges and successes earning great money wrestling in front of thousands of people things that many people even at that time who were decent stars never got to do people today very seldom got to do and this is a guy who came to the United States in 1883 he learned wrestling American style he sometimes got people to meet him halfway and do mixed rules alternating Greco-Roman or catch wrestling and his native sumo wrestling usually he'd win those but occasionally uh, you'd meet a guy like Muldoon who would probably succeed at any sport he played once so he managed to knock him off the stage or out of the circle so a lot of the wrestlers were willing to make it a little bit more of an even match most likely to sell tickets most likely to keep things going for that extra 20 to 30 minutes in the main event but whether it was done for business or for respect for his uh, art his style who can say the important thing is you would think it would be a little less tolerant, even if it was a situation where they're just trying to draw out the main event. But here we are. He had wins over big names. He had draws against big names. He had honorable, hard-fought losses against big names. And sometimes that's all you need to keep your name in the paper, to keep the uh, the offers, the bookings, the paydays coming. And he sure as shit was doing that immediately. Yeah,
1: one thing that you'll notice uh, throughout the story Is there's a a real sort of Rocky Balboa undertone where whether it's the the heroic loss against the superior champion but showing the fighting spirit of a true martial artist or as you're gonna see like a Rocky IV kind of thing where obviously he is a novelty he is a Japanese foreign adversary coming to America at this time we're talking pre 1900 this is a very different and racist America way more than it is then, then what would be, I mean, you're talking about racist headlines, you're talking about racist uh, slander from the crowd in the ring that stuff would not be tolerated today, the things that he overcame, and he became beloved and endeared by his fellow wrestlers and by the people because they really cared. He really, he really was a trendsetter and a, and a pioneer.
0: And one way to definitely get a crowd behind you, no matter what their prejudices might be, is to wrestle somebody everyone hated. Like on January 28th, 1886, he had his first match against the feared for very good reasons, Evan Strangler Lewis. In a three out of five falls, catch wrestling match, no mixed rules, straight ahead catch, not necessarily in Matsuda's wheelhouse for even competition, but there he was. And this match was huge and took place in the sold out Central Music Hall in Chicago. The terms were $250 each and 75% of the gate to the winner. And that is a huge amount of money.
1: No wonder they're willing to fight for three hours for a single fall. When that much of the purse is riding on the wins or the loss, you, you're willing to go to war and do what it takes to get the job done, man. That's crazy.
0: According to the Salt Lake Evening Democrat, Lewis won the first fall uh, with what was described as a double leg that put Matsuda on his back. In the second, Lewis nearly finished him with a rear naked choke. But for some reason, the ref broke it up. Nobody really understands why that happened. Maybe the hold was banned. There was a miscommunication. Who can say? Matsuda then tossed Lewis out of the ring over the top rope in a scramble, which is not something that was allowed. He apparently felt really bad about this and they shook hands. Whether accidental or as a receipt, Lewis then tossed Matsuda into the front row and Matsuda was awarded the second fall as a DQ. In the third, Strangler Lewis caught Matsuda with his favorite submission hold, the strangle hold, the hang hold, the guillotine, whatever you want to call it, and put Matsuda out hard. It took a while for him to be revived and wasn't able to continue the match. Like we discussed in the Evan Lewis series, if the referee doesn't understand a submission and you don't necessarily tap out, you can be unconscious for a while before they notice that they need to stop this, which is dangerous. And that's why this hold was banned quite often but he went to sleep he couldn't recover properly boom that is the end of the match
1: yeah it's interesting that the referee broke up the earlier strangle attempt and then let this one go but yeah the the ignorance of the referee as far as the nuances of the uh, choke hold and the submission hold really is evident because there's no way it should have been allowed to be held on long enough to keep a person out once it's Once it's released, the person should be revived pretty quickly unless it's really been held on for a long time.
0: And even though it was one-sided and it did end with some controversy, because again, he was choked out, he didn't give up, the ref maybe let it go too long, people were not happy with it, so on February 15th, 1886, again in Chicago, was a rematch versus Evan Strangler Lewis, and in the rematch, an angry Sorokichi declared, You choke me, I shoot you! Lewis reportedly replied, I won't choke you, but I'll screw your leg off. The clearly pissed off Lewis took Matsuda down immediately and quickly secured an ankle lock that badly damaged Matsuda's ankle. He probably would have cranked the foot off his leg if the crowd hadn't started booing wildly, the crowd hurling insults such as brute, shame, coward, and devil towards Lewis. People hated this guy so much they would rather cheer for a foreigner, than the hometown boy because he was just that awful of a human being.
1: Yeah, and let me tell you something, a leg submission that has been cranked past the point of where a person's tapping out and you continue to crack on it, I mean, you talk about like Paul Horace today, that is one of the nastiest things you can do to somebody and it really shows what an asshole Strangler Lewis was.
0: Yeah, he's one of those guys that Most of his matches were obvious shoots. He sometimes would let an opponent he liked get that middle fall for the sake of drama, but when he wanted to hurt somebody, he would go out there and hurt somebody. He was the type of guy who definitely would have had like a UFC contract cut for holding on to a leg submission totally. way too long. And it is very also funny that they even gave him this rematch with the stipulation of the stranglehold being banned. It's kind of like if you fought Mike Tyson and you get knocked out with that right uppercut and you demand a rematch, but where the right uppercut is banned. But either way, it was again a short match, very brutal, crowd nearly rioting. That is the Strangler Lewis Way, and it was such a scandal and such a big deal that it was the only match of its era to make the front page of the New York Times.
1: Wow, that is that is some pretty substantial press, and it you know, it shows what a warrior, Matsuda was to go in there and to challenge the the most notorious not just shooter but a hooker. A hooker is a guy who's gonna hook in a submission and crank it until your body doesn't work the same. And the fact is, he probably never walked the same after this match.
0: There is, of course, you know, various stories that mostly popped up later, um, that he broke Matsuda's leg, broke his ankle, tore something important, but he was back to business almost immediately. For example, April 4th, 1887, where he defeated James Faulkner in a two out of three falls match, despite weighing 138 pounds to Faulkner's 155. The match was high paced with Matsuda getting the final fall by transitioning a half Nelson into a hammerlock and turning Faulkner over to his back with that. In the advertisement printed in the paper, they assured ticket buyers that this would not be a hippodrome.
1: Well, that was a a, uh... Sound victory and a great technical exhibition against a a larger opponent, but yeah, he's weighing 138 at this point in his career. You're talking about the solid man Muldoon that he's faced off previously is up in the 200 pound range, 190 to 210 pounds. Strangler Lewis, 190, 180 pound guy. He's fighting giants, and he's getting the job done, and he's showing the heart of a of, of a warrior, and that's why I think he was endeared to the people. Ultimately,
0: he was a very active wrestler during this time, as every wrestler was, whether it was doing exhibitions in theaters, carnival shows, or these big matches. On May thirty first, eighteen eighty seven, he lost to James C Doyle in Baltimore. Eighteen eighty eight, August first, he lost to Henry Moses Dofer in a mixed rules match. Uh, Henry Moses Dofer, he's another one of those crazy Civil War vet catch as catch can submission specialists, who was a big deal. Actually, we do have a uh, mini-episode about him online that's worth checking out. His story is Bananas. Civil War hero, got shot through the hand, went on to be a champion wrestler, despite with Civil War-level medical yeah, treatment, totally wounds. got a fucking ball through the hand and went on to still be able to whoop some ass. What an absolute savage. So that is completely goddamn Bananas yeah. that he would even be able to hang with him, let alone beat a trained wrestler like Matsuda. A few months down the line, on August 7th, 1887, another big match against William Muldoon. How big? Nearly 4,000 people showed up at the Springfield Ohio fairgrounds to watch them battle under Greco-Roman rules for a $500 purse. Muldoon won won the first and third fall in eight and seven minutes, respectively. Matsuda won the middle fall in 14 minutes, and that's very impressive considering the skill, size, and strength disadvantage, but if there was ever a style to match up well against somebody with a sumo background, it's Greco-Roman.
1: Yeah, and it shows that these two just have a certain... Sometimes styles make fights, and, and individual chemistry that is just innate, and, and you can't really fa- put a factor on why it is what it is, and Muldoon knows... That he has a game marquee opponent in Matsuda again and again and again. And it shows here years later. They're still drawing. They're still putting on tremendous performances that are back and forth. And it's a, it's telling an incredible story.
0: And continuing his grind, October twenty eighth, eighteen eighty seven, in Buffalo, New York, uh, the the home of the near riot that uh, Evan Lewis nearly started, he faced off against Edwin Beebe, his very first opponent, and. Beebe did defeat Matsuda in his final match under catch rules. It was Edwin Beebe's final appearance in the ring, on the stage, whatever the setup was, because on May 5th, 1905, Beebe died from rheumatism at the age of 56, so clearly that is a long downhill slope of uh, of an illness until it finally catches you. This is a time when there were many illnesses that would just ruin your life for decades before it finished you off, and that's clearly what pushed this man out of the sport. He did go out with a win over his Japanese adversary.
1: Yeah, it was a very fitting end to his career. Very. Uh, story, there's a real uh, poetic element to how that finished up kind of nicely and neatly. But you, you'll see, if you if you listen to previous episodes, that is not an uncommon occurrence where just nasty disease and just byproducts of the health expectancy of people in this area. We're talking, you know, we're talking 1900, man. We're talking old school Civil not War maybe. medicine. We're, we're
0: still in the 1880s. This is the time when Uh, stepping on a rusty nail could be a death sentence. This is a time when, oh, I broke my hand, I am now useless to society, my farm will not be taken care of, my family might starve. Medicine was still a thing, healthcare was still a thing, but it was very primitive compared to what we're seeing today, let alone on an athletic level. On March 19, 1888, there's an article in the Evening Bulletin that Matsuda had left New York City for Salem, Massachusetts, technically forfeiting the $750 he put down for a match against Joe Acton, another fantastic catch wrestler. Acton's manager said he'd hold the money in good faith, expecting Matsuda to return to wrestle Acton. Acton, you might remember from our Evan Lewis series, with whom he had one of the worst, most obviously worked matches of the day. And the match versus Joe Acton would end up happening with Matsuda being unable to throw Acton in a gimmick challenge match, but good gravy, that was a lot of money to risk in those days.
1: Yes, Acton's got some bad acting. They were they were seeing through his shit, as they say in the business, and they, they, the the marks were not none too happy. But I'm surprised that Matsuda was willing to book that finish and give give such an amateur uh, the opportunity to be successful
0: because this is a time where it wasn't simply a matter of an agreement for a guarantee from a promoter or a split of the door necessarily those things did come into play but a lot of times you had to put your own money down to secure that match each man would have to put down 250 with the other guy winning the pot and you would have situations where it would have to be you know you'd have to take $500 out of your pocket or find somebody to back you. And that $1,000 became a guarantee for the winner and then a minor deal possibly for a door split however the extra money was coming in and yes there were many hippodromed matches many worked matches many fixed fights where nobody really put down the money they just announced it because they would base the uh, profit margin off of the gambling they would see who's getting the most bets from the bookie and then they would go the other way everything is a scam everything is a con in pro wrestling whether it's for the point of telling a good story and selling tickets or lining your pockets with carny swerves like this. But either way, he left town with $750 on the plate, whether that was legitimate or just trying to draw heat for a, for a, uh, a match down the road. Either way, that's a, that's a hit to your reputation as a uh, responsible human being, because that's $750 in 1880s money.
1: Yeah, what do you think the angle was of, of why he actually chose to do that?
0: Who can say? Maybe it was a match. Maybe he forgot. Maybe he just wanted to, uh, you know, visit uh, scenic Massachusetts. He went on a witch hunt tour. Who can say? Either way, it is a weird move barring some sort of weird emergency. Frank Dukes would probably say he was uh, rescuing orphans in katana. <laughs> <laughs> no such lies here. We just simply don't know. January 12th, 1889, he suffered another loss to William Muldoon, like many people were doing even at this time. Muldoon had been the champion for nearly a decade, but was still top-notch in conditioning, skill, and competitiveness, and Philadelphia got to see him absolutely run over Matsuda. But again, Matsuda is still enough of a draw, enough of a top competitor to get spots like that without being like a good promo guy or like you know because you you see a lot of guys who are able to run their mouth enough to get spots they don't necessarily deserve you see guys like Chael Sonnen uh, and now definitely Conor McGregor guys who their shit talking gets them into the money spots this guy I feel is still just getting those freak show Japanese wrestler spots but after a certain point would a crowd show up if it wasn't competitive? Because once you see a freak show, very few people go back to see the same freak show unless there was something of substance behind it.
1: Yeah, that's true. I think it speaks, one, to the to the viability of Matsuda as a legitimate competitor and as a draw. Two, you could pull this shit because if you notice, every one of these these ballots and these series with Muldoon they're doing it years apart in different places whether you're talking about three years ago in Ohio and now they're in Philly they are taking and you could pull that off back then because there was no internet there was no, unless you saw it yourself or read a newspaper article or somebody you know saw it in that other town it was new to you and they could take the show and it's not a surprise and when you have a champion that established at that point in his run he's gonna look for the guys that have been successful opponents for him time and again and it makes sense that, that they're getting another crack at this.
0: Because this is before YouTube. You couldn't simply pull totally. up the first Muldoon Matsuda match on the internet and give it a watch. You didn't have, in many cases, detailed play-by-plays in the sporting pages. Those were reserved for you know, like very big, very rare type matches and usually quite a bit later. You would find good descriptions of matches where it would be like a title match between Evan Lewis, Farmer Burns, uh, Evan Lewis and uh, uh, Ernst Robler, or, you know, Gotch later on. But a lot of these were just, you'd see in the paper under the sporting news and halfway down on the horse races and the squash games or the frog races. I don't know what people did in these days outside of what I read from Mark Twain. You just see Muldoon defeats Matsuda, you know, 20 minutes, you know, whatever, just the basic information but then you would know the names. So you could very easily, much like we talk about in the carnival episode, you can take the same show five states over, no matter how played out it would be in other places, it's brand new because they're not seeing the TV replays, they're not seeing the internet replays, they're not on Twitter getting everyone's fucking dumb shit reaction to it about how it should have gone this way or this person's a bum. You are seeing an attraction that has been built as an attraction that you have heard of even if it's peripheral, so you know this is an important sporting event, so you will put down your nickel to go see it, because it beats the hell out of going out to the pasture and watching the mule shit yet again.
1: Yeah, there's nothing else going on back then anyway. It's the hottest ticket in town because it's the only ticket in town! And, you know, the viability of a draw, you know, Philly will always throw down to see a good proper scrap title match
0: whether it was 1889 with this match or in the 90s with ECW or contemporary uh, television wrestling where every time they have a pay-per-view there that crowd eats the show alive they will do what they want they will boo who they hate whether they want it scripted that way or not Philadelphia is a hell of a sports town it's a terrifying sports town Flyers fans scare the shit out of me if you're a Flyers fan from Philadelphia listening to this that's a compliment. I love a good wild fan who lets the, uh, the players know their mind.
1: Yes, you guys threw batteries at Santa, man. That's heel life.
0: If there were Ds, I need those for my time machine. <laughs>
1: totally. Call yeah. back joke. There, all the Ds get thrown in the field in Philadelphia.
0: And in Scranton, PA, on January 21st, 1889, home of the office, home birthplace, I think, of the president, I know he lived there anyway, Matsuda took on Greek wrestler Antonio Pierre, and Matsuda won the first fall. But Pierre started getting rough, as it often happened in wrestling these days, resulting in Matsuda pouring blood from his nose. The audience was so outraged by the rough treatment that they nearly rioted. Pierre's rough tactics paid off, however, and he won the following two falls. The Butte Semi Weekly Miner described Pierre as winning with a stranglehold, so we'll just assume it was a, a guillotine. So Matsuda came out, probably still being the lighter, uh, you know, wrestler won the first one. Uh, the guy started uh, probably throwing punches, headbutts, you know, cross-facing the nose, doing things that are dirty, if not outright illegal, hurt him enough to uh, to, to get the next two falls. I don't want to condone dirty tactics, but if the ref's not stopping it, that's kind of on the ref.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you ain't cheating, you're, you ain't trying, right? But I think it also shows that the fans were behind Matsuda, man. They're booing this. They're not they're not with this shit. Even though the even though the foreign menace is getting screwed here, this, they they have grown to love the, the original Japanese professional wrestler in America. Because as we
0: keep talking about, this is like a decade and a half removed from the Civil War. This is a time where anti-foreigner especially non-white foreigner racism is very very serious but whether it was watching the smaller underdog fight hard or whether just a sense of fair play and decorum they were siding with the japanese wrestler i guess Probably as a Greek, he was probably a little dark-skinned being Mediterranean and caught caught some hell from it. The Protestant audience didn't want to see a Catholic doing well, especially if he was cheating. Who can say? But the important thing is, these people were pissed to see Matsuda mistreated in the ring and nearly stormed the ring and tore the place apart. There were a lot of new riots, if not outright riots, back in these days during wrestling. No one, and yet it was boxing that they made illegal.
1: Yeah, isn't that interesting? He's been on both sides of almost causing the riot here, <laughs> whether it's the heel or the face. But he was beloved in Philadelphia. That is, without without question.
0: And he would still be getting the wins. You know, like on July tenth, eighteen eighty nine, he defeated Peter Shoemaker of Butte, Montana, in a two out of three falls match to be declared the Greco Roman middleweight champion for whatever that's worth in that part of uh, of of the country. Despite Matsuda winning the third fall with a stranglehold, I guess they just weren't paying attention to the rules, didn't have the handbook, but a Greco-Roman match was ended with a submission. Not necessarily how it should go, but they still gave him the title, whether it was a trophy or a belt, or maybe, I don't know, if this is uh, in in the Butte, Montana era, maybe they just gave him a nice steak. I sometimes would take that on august 9th 1889 in seattle washington matsuda clashed with william h quinn according to the press matsuda did so against doctors orders because he was dealing with a bad cold he told his friends not to bet on him and for for their sakes i hope they took his his advice
1: yes always trust the worker when he gives you the tip on the old on the old work old chap i mean I can, I can only imagine that that was, at this point in his career, he is so seasoned and so accustomed to doing every variant of, you know, a work to a shoot and everything in between that he just realized he didn't have it in the tank and thought he'd get his boys a quick payday.
0: And that's a concept that we do see a lot in matches from this time, especially like when we talked about Lewis, of people continuing their careers with illnesses, because these were things that were planned months ahead of time thousands of tickets sold, and this isn't the day where you could get some NyQuil or, uh, you know, some, some Diamond Tap or whatever the heck it is that's ailing you. You can't simply uh, throw back a, uh, a bit of cough medicine to suppress your symptoms. These are the days where, like, a cold could be like a debilitating, like, three-month battle. But, you know what? You gotta put food on the table so you still go out there, you still do your thing. And now we get to a story, which actually kind of got me in the uh, the old feelings a little bit. On April 4th, 1890, it's not a wrestling match. It's not a uh, a, a face off in the ring or on a stage, but something that just made me feel really bad for the guy according to news articles he was robbed in the middle of the night someone snuck in stole forty dollars of cash and a gold and silver watch his father had given him before leaving for america just something about this really made my heart hurt thinking about the rough and tumble life this guy was leading in the united states traveling from coast to coast fighting everyone just that amount of travel, and someone stole the emotionally charged valuable object that he kept with him the whole time. Just a human thing that just made me just feel really, really upset about that.
1: Yeah, it's it's one of the, the sad things is the tragic underpinnings of his story, you know? He, he keeps rising and climbing and, and trendsetting and trailblazing, but ultimately, you know, sad circumstance and tragic event and, and just bullshit luck happens to him again and again, you know, whether it's getting his leg practically ripped off by Strangler Lewis or having to deal with disease and other issues or just, you know, this this situation here. It's just, it sucks because sometimes the good guys just never get that overcome a period where they finally like get that happily ever after, you know?
0: It's also fascinating to read about these matches during this time when he was starting to appear in places like Montana and California and Oregon and places like that that were very recently acquired and settled by White Americans. When I'm finding these articles, they're usually accompanied, like three, uh, you know, three columns over, by clashes with Native Americans or, wow. uh, you know, highwaymen. These were still very rough times. Oh, yeah. This was very. This wasn't far removed from the the Deadwood era. If you watched that show, it was still, you know, gun on your hip, trying to make it in the wilderness, doing your best to create civilization out of a forest. And these guys were hitting those camps, hitting those towns, hitting those gold rush situations, putting on shows, working the town, doing shoot matches, all the carny shit you heard about in the carnival episode, the hippodrome episode, the gotch episode. It's just fascinating to think about that kind of travel. It's like, because think about what America looked like at that time as far as travel time coast to coast. Oh, yeah. And how that must have felt to a person from Japan, which is a very tiny country. It makes me think of my good friend, Kikotaro. Uh he, he used to drive to Denver for shows from Las Vegas and I'd be like, I can get you a flight, and he would tell me how, he's like, no, no, no. I like driving, Japan, very small. You drive across, very easy. America, you drive all day, still fucking nowhere. Why America so big? And that's a question for the philosophers, but it is definitely an issue when you are uh, trying to make your way show to show, because this isn't trying to get to the airport at 5 a.m. This is catching a train or a wagon or whatever the fuck it is to get tied to a mule and dragged across a desert.
1: Yeah, he did the Oregon Trail Loop. That's what we called it back then. You're talking about the last frontier in America, because after after we went west, we went north to find gold up in Alaska. and, And being a native of Seattle, that's what that town was founded on, and I can tell you that there was a lot of really, really aggressive war, like you said, wars against the Native Americans at that time, wars against just the abundance of nature and how gnarly that shit is. Bigfoot's real, man, and he was, he was up there in the Northwest when this match went down.
0: No articles so far on how many matches Bigfoot had, whether they were hippodromes, his work rate, whatever, maybe we'll find those later on, maybe we will prove that point. And though we're talking about it being a rough time, not everyone thought the life of a wrestler on the road was so bad. The October 8th, 1889 issue of the Grand Rapids Telegram Herald published a story about how becoming a wrestler was a great financial move.
1: Yes, apparently if you if you work for the Grand Rapids Telegram Herald, then yes, working on the road on the Oregon Trail Loop for pro wrestling would definitely be a move up in status.
0: This made me crack up. Professional wrestling is a good remunerative business and pays far better on average than the law, pulpit, or medicine. Of our great lights, Muldoon enjoys a superb income from his exhibitions, while Professor Miller, Andre Cristal, Bauer, Strangler Lewis, Greg George, Duncan C. Ross, and that eccentric Japanese athlete Matsuda Sarakichi seldom, if never, make less than $5,000 a year for their professional work. In fact, it may be safely said that a first-class wrestler is always sure of a first-class living, and boy, isn't that still true to this day.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, I, I... Drove here from my golden house, didn't you? You know, reaping in the five thousand dollar paydays. Yes, pro wrestling is definitely the business you want to get into if you're looking to make as much money as possible.
0: It's it makes me think about that uh, Dempsey quote. You know, I can't sing and I can't dance, but I can lick any some bitch in this in the place. Wrestling isn't necessarily a uh, you know bad on the finances, especially back in these days where you could get those carnival spots or Hippodrome spots and you're, you're working the marks, but the life of a con man, even if it's profitable, is still includes a lot of looking over your shoulder, spending too much money on bullshit, and having to skip town in the middle of the night under fear of arrest. And whether it was real or predetermined, it was always hard work. August 31st, 1890, Helena Montana again. Matsuda defeated William H. Quinn in another handicap match. Quinn had to win 3 falls in an hour, but the smaller Matsuda would win if he could secure one fall. Quinn pinned him twice, but both were gassed out. Quinn made a mistake and got caught in the stranglehold and rolled flat onto his back to escape the submission and was considered pinned. Quinn was so badly chewed up by the choke that he had to be carried away. Matsuda received $250 plus 75% of the gate, according to the Seattle Post Intelligencer. Matsuda got in shape by pulling a boat and running up and down a mountain. I guess that'll do it at altitude. But yeah, there if so long as you were winning, there was a lot of money involved. 75% of the gate is always gonna be a decent payday.
1: Yeah, and when you are speaking comparatively to the other quote-unquote professional athletic endeavors at the time there's no football there's no basketball pro sports is not what we think of pro sports today so pro wrestling was much higher relatively speaking on the pay scale but we're still i mean you said he went for a shoot fight for three falls and got 250 bucks it's not like you're you're getting some disproportionate amount of money for the work you're doing
0: and honestly Even with inflation, that's still more money than I ever made on a fight.
1: Well, uh, that's also more money, that's not enough money that it would take for me to fight more than one fall in one match. Like, that is some serious shit. You want me to fight for three hours for 250 bucks? Hell no. 75% of the gate, however, we can talk turkey.
0: And something like that was clearly a legitimate match. However, the November 9th, 1890 edition of the Anaconda Standard, a Montana paper, claimed the match was a work and that Matsuda was a fraud, claiming that Matsuda skipped town, claiming an injury, when a legit local wrestler called him out, only to be seen wrestling in Utah immediately afterwards. They called the match against Peter Shoemaker to be a hippodrome, and the article griped about how Matsuda, Quinn, Lucien Mark Cristal, and others were reaping a fortune in that most wretched hive of scum and fake wrestling, Denver, Colorado. What? I'm glad we're still living up to our reputation today, old chap. And whether this is true, which is entirely possible, or just a bitter sports writer being angry that a Japanese wrestler beat the local white boys, it's impossible to say for sure. However, I won't read any part of that article out loud. It is so laced with racist terms that I didn't even like reading the damn thing in the first place.
1: Yeah, it just sounds like they're good old-fashioned player hating that they got out-hustled. They they tried to work the worker, and they got worked, and then he bounced and left town on some carny shit. You know,
0: welcome to the Oregon Trail Loop, boys. And in his final, that's right, his final... On record, big win, January 12th, 1891, St. Joseph, Missouri, Matsuda, still billed as the Greco-Roman middleweight champion of the United States. With that title, he won in Greco-Roman rules despite winning with a stranglehold. But once again, back in these days, you could bill anyone. Back in these days, you could bill anyone as a champion. It was all marketing, it was all selling tickets, it was all pro wrestling. Titles really meant nothing except for the one Muldoon held, and that was mostly because he was a big star and known coast to coast. It was celebrity giving it legitimacy. In this match, he defeated Burt Shell in front of 800 fans, which was kind of a white house at that point, but maybe stars are diminishing, people didn't have anything, or people had to uh, you know get to market, whatever, but 800 people is huge by indie wrestling standards today. Not so much in these days. And Shell beat Matsuda in the first fall after 40 minutes with Matsuda coming in from behind and winning the next two. One of those matches I don't feel would be worked at all. Most likely his athleticism just gave him that edge to uh, keep the gas in his tank until the fight was over. But then we kind of hit a wall. We hit May 13th, 1891. His final match that I could find any information on versus Martin Farmer Burns in Troy, New York. It was during an open challenge, which to me indicates that even at this point, Farmer Burns was showing up to take shots at the top guys whenever he could. A situation where Matsuda was just going open challenge, trying to make some carnival money, some theater money against the local goofballs. And who shows up but the fucking Farmer.
1: Yeah. Bart Burns. Oh. That is the worst stick you could have in the audience, man. The guy who made his career. If you followed the previous episodes that we've done that have included Farmer Burns, you know this. But that was his gimmick was literally being the farmer to answer the open challenge. And he made a career off of that and became one of the most dominant, not only competitors, but became one of the father figures of pro wrestling and, and of modern training methods and training camps. And That's just a bad luck of the draw, man, because the Farmer is some serious shit.
0: And Farmer Burns, Martin Burns, more or less ran through Matsuda, embarrassed him in front of everyone, took the challenge money, went on with his day. But why was this Matsuda's final match? because Matsuda had contracted tuberculosis at some point and had become incredibly sick from it. In retrospect, many realized why Matsuda had appeared to be a shell of his former self over the last few years, over many matches on his decline, and was practically a throwing dummy in the hands of someone like Farmer Burns. Soon he was bedridden, broke abandoned by his wife, and sadly never achieved his goal of introducing American-style wrestling to Japan. At the time, Japan had become ferociously nativistic with their culture and rejected all things foreign and Western after their long fight against European and American influence. It wouldn't be until after World War II when professional wrestling would catch on in Japanese culture on August 16th, 1891 he died in his New York City apartment and was buried in Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx this is a man who made thousands of dollars went coast to coast for almost a decade huge matches but he just spent the money as fast as he could make it a bit of a bit of a problem for many athletes many fighters where you just you get all this money coming in you live like a maniac doing every fun thing you can think of and then when it runs out everybody abandons you because he was abandoned by his wife he was abandoned by his japanese girlfriend the community would like try to take care of him because there was a japanese immigrant community in new york that at least would check in on him but tuberculosis especially in this uh this era, and especially when you're someplace like New York City with that much humidity, is a horrifying illness. There was no cure, there was no treatment, except, you know, go to Colorado where there's, you know, go, go someplace dry at an altitude, and it's a horrible disease, it was a horrible death. Not the ending he deserved or wanted, or anybody should deserve or want, But more heartbreaking, he came here with a goal of becoming a great catch wrestler and taking that back to Japan to show off his love, to introduce a new sport there, and he never did it. And even his contacts going to back Japan really showed no interest in this Western idea of grappling, especially when there was so much conflict culturally with people trying to more or less colonize Japan, and they just pushed everything Western away.
1: Well, you know, the 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 sort of poetic element of it is that while he failed in his goal of bringing American pro-wrestling back to Japan, he brought Japanese pro-wrestling to America. He is the guy that introduced sumo or Japanese rules. He was probably the first... He was the first Japanese pro-wrestler, and he was probably the first look that a lot of people in America at that time had of any... Aspect of Japanese culture firsthand at all. So, while you know he wasn't able to take it back to his homeland, he brought his homeland to America, and we are forever grateful for the influences that he did for, for our sport.
0: And he was remembered fondly by his contemporaries and the sporting press in February 1902, 11 years after Matsuda's death. Jack Carkeek told the British sporting paper Mirror of Life that he held a high opinion of Sorokichi, the Jap, whom he considered probably to be the cleverest man in the world at his weight. The plucky little Jap had suffered numerous defeats simply because he had tackled all the best men of his day, no matter what their size or weight might be, and the good little ones must ever go down to the big ones. His record hovered around 500, but that's not bad for someone who started competing at a high level within a year of training catch wrestling, and always gave up enormous weight advantages to his American opponents. But in the ironic twist of human psychology, this is exactly the same thing that made him so admired and memorable.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting because he was billed as the the foreign menace or the exotic heel, and he became beloved because he was that true underdog story. The, the, you know, the American dream personified. in an an unconventional way. A first generation immigrant that came here to learn a craft and to take it home and to better himself and to better his people. And that resonated with the people. He went against every, not only physical, but literal giant of his era. And while he he lost more than he won, he was in there with all of the greats of his time. And he, he truly put Japanese pro wrestling on the map in America.
0: And there's something about the human condition, something about the human mind that makes us always root for an underdog. It makes us root for the smaller guy, the little guy against the big guy. There's something about us that just admires the hell out of it, no matter what a needless bad idea it was. He makes me think of so many Japanese wrestlers that transition to mixed martial arts, in the early 2000s in places like Pride FC where they really didn't give a shit about weight classes. You would have guys like Dejiro Matsui who would go out against guys every single time who would outweigh him by 40 pounds plus sometimes. He would go out there with a huge size, experience and strength disadvantage but everybody would cheer him on and everybody would support him from the fellow fighters to the commentary because he was taking on a challenge that was way too big for his plate, and while in mythology, in storytelling, That is rad as fuck, but in reality, that is horrifying to the body when you don't think about weight classes. This is why we have weight classes today, to protect little guys, make them competitive, and keep them from getting their heads bashed in left and right by guys who are twice their size.
1: Yeah, and and it is an element that does resonate with people on just a fundamental level. When you see the smaller guy who really does, you know, David and Goliath, man, that classic elemental story told out again and again, and every once in a while, the little guy wins.
0: Yeah, we always gravitate towards those moments. It's like Avengers Endgame, Captain America getting up with his broken shield and strapping it on against this entire army, and we are ready to cheer him no matter what. We appreciate tenacity. We appreciate courage. But... In a sport where there are no weight classes, that equates to a terrible record and terrible health down the line, even though, yes, he did die young of a disease that was not curable. You see a lot of fighters from those early days of MMA who were very all about it, who had you know 20, 30, 40 fights, and would go 10 and 30 because they were fighting big dudes. Their record was garbage, And their knees, their brains are shot because they were outmatched for the sake of telling an emotional story that should have been a work and not a shoot.
1: Yeah, and and but glory was theirs, you know, and that. Is something that we know today is very resonates very deeply with the Japanese culture and the Japanese people specifically when it comes to pro wrestling and fighting sports. You know the 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 samurai, the spirit of the samurai, the warrior spirit, the the ability to follow through even when your head's been cut off and deliver your final stroke. That is something they've talked about from Masashi in the Book of the Five Rings. the the spirit the the spirit to come forward against all odds and and he represented that better than maybe anyone we've covered so far on the show
0: and i feel that is what made him so popular amongst his peers amongst the sporting press amongst the american audience they would cheer him against the dirty fighters of their own country which would be rare to the point of almost being unheard of but that is the story of the first japanese pro wrestler is it tragic yes does it have a happy ending no but does does it lay the groundwork for what was to come absolutely is it an amazing glimpse into the potential of the human spirit when they when it sets its mind to something 100 percent. and that's our takeaway if we're being positive on this one so in the end it is not a happy ending but it's almost a triumphant ending
1: yes it was um it was a a man who lived a life where his his accomplishments were not maybe fully appreciated in in the ripple effect of what they did in his time, but he truly changed the landscape of professional wrestling in America.
0: And I hope that everyone listening to this two-part story is as impressed with Sorokichi Matsuda as I was putting this all together. A fantastic story about a absolutely amazing human being. Holy shit, what a story to tell.
1: Yeah, what a badass too, man.
0: So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, hopefully you have listened to every episode. If this is your first taste of our uh, storytelling prowess, go back and check out some old episodes. They're pretty gosh darn good as well. Make sure you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe so you get the episodes automatically when you drop these every two weeks. But for now, we're going to close the book on... Sorokichi Matsuda. We're going to go about the rest of our day. For Chango Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you next time.
1: Yes. Capital work today, nerds. Good job. Thank you all. Cut, Prince Martini.